Welcome to Ask Andy featuring Andrew Redleaf. Today, Andy will be answering questions submitted by you in no particular order. Our first question this week comes from Adam. How long can interest rates stay so low and we will ultimately have high inflation? Predicted to be a little bit uh, flamboyant 5% CPI in 2021, but somewhat counterintuitively, I expect interest rates to be very low for a considerable period of time. Part A and Part B might seem a little inconsistent, but let me give a little fuller context and explanation of why I think both can and and will occur. The first point I would make is that over the last least 20, maybe 30 years, post-Volcker, inflation in the developed world has been more or less strictly an asset price phenomenon. We've had asset inflation and sporadically very rapid asset deflation, but very little um, consumer price inflation. I think one of the fundamental failings of the economics profession in this era is to think of, uh, to ignore asset prices in terms of how they think about inflation. I think the principal reason this has been true is that the instrumentalities of monetary policy, and increasingly so, work through wealthy people. And wealthy people buy assets. They don't, you know, buy, have a very small marginal propensity to consume. So, you know, the things that rich people buy have experienced uh, quite steady but and meaningful in inflation over the last 20 years. The reason I think we'll start seeing CPI-type inflation is that uh, monetary interventions are being directed more directly to consumers, while at the same time uh, supply chains are being disrupted, costs are being imposed in businesses, and we'll have cost push. As to the interest rate kind of question, I want to give a very, very broad context, which is that essentially from sometime in the 70s, whether it was starting at the abandonment in Bretton Woods or the deregulation of stock commissions on the New York Stock Exchange, starting sometime in the 70s to 2008, I believe we were in a period of what I would call empowered individualistic capitalism. You might even say it was a period of uh, market idolatry. And I believe that ended in 2008. Now, some of the features of this, first of all, belief in the power, the inevitability, the force of markets. So it's a cliche. Uh, nobody's bigger than the markets, not even governments. And, you know, so you have the story of uh, George Soros. The markets is embodied by George Soros breaking the Bank of England. And you have Mohammed Delarian writes a book called When Markets Collide, you know, sort of a vision of the physical sciences, of physical forces that can't be resisted, can't be overcome, or in some way are the most fundamental powerful forces. I think that belief, which does in fact, you know, kind of feed on itself, is particular to a time and place. And contrary to all sorts of uh, historical counterexamples, for example, Bretton Woods was in effect for, in round numbers, 30 years, reasonably successfully. So you had currencies pegged to each other, and yes, there were occasional devaluations. Uh, 
but the system held for 30 years. Now, throughout the 70s and 80s, it was a matter of faith, doctrine, um, conventional wisdom, whatever you might want to call it, that the Fed could control short-term rates, but that long-term rates were set by market forces, and, and that the, even if the Fed wanted to control long-term rates, they probably couldn't. Everybody believed this, even though there was a 10-year period where the Fed did, in fact, successfully peg 10-year rates through World War II and post. Now, it is true, and Jim Grant would say, interest rates are a price, price controls don't work. It's true that if you just set a price and don't do anything on the supply and demand side, at some point you will either end up with gluts or shortages. But there's a lot of power of governments on both the supply and demand side. And again, there's a a sociological factor that varies over time, which is to say how markets either the government's view of the futility of pushing against markets or a market the market's view of the utility of pushing against the government. You know, famously in the 80s, James Carville said he wanted to be reincarnated as the bond market because the bond market was the most powerful thing <laughs> in the world and no government could take on the bond market. I think there's a lot of indication today that, well, yes, they can. It seems very, very clear to me, more or less every government in the world is interested in, in fact, you know, needs very low real rates. And I think they have a lot of different instruments to enforce that. And the amorphous market won't really want to or be able to push against that. Our next question comes from Toby. The trillions of dollars of fiscal and monetary stimulus do not appear to have any negative effects so far. If this continues, why not have more huge stimulus packages going forward? I think it's interesting that to date, massive monetary and fiscal stimulation hasn't resulted in the consumer price inflation or in particularly obvious bottleneck shortages or, you know, on the other hand, gluts. So the question is, you know, why not do more? And I think, you know, we're very much in uncharted territory. So things bend, things crack, but they also shatter. So because we haven't seen really bending, breaking, cracking, doesn't mean that there's not the potential for a wholesale, you know, a wholesale sort of shattering. To said we haven't seen cracks, but to some degree, you know, certainly you can believe that the fiscal stimulus of 08, the TARP and the rescue packages and so forth, gave rise to the Tea Party. And not quite the, the same thing, but Trumpism and that class divide. I think Bitcoin and digital currencies represent a crack the idea being to move transactions off the grid, unintermediated by government entities. And that's, at some point, the political system for administering the monetary and fiscal stimulus and the acceptance of those who don't think of themselves as the beneficiaries wanes and you get collapse. Think about 
the fall of the Soviet Union. Were there, you know, cracks and fissures? You know, maybe, but it more or less collapsed, and that's the danger that you get a sort of wholesale loss of faith in the system, and you don't have the sort of resiliency. You don't have the you know kind of automatic feedback mechanisms that might let you abort before it's too late. But you know certainly nobody knows that point or whether we're near that point, approaching that point. But I don't think it can be dismissed cavalierly. Our next question comes from Cindy. What, if anything, should the federal government do about supporting and or forgiving student debt? Should it be dischargeable in bankruptcy? What are your general thoughts on how much government intervention should be provided in the individual debt relief? I think blanket forgiveness of student debt would be one of the worst policies imaginable. The really troubling and fundamental divide in the country is college-educated and non-college-educated, urban and rural. The majority student debt is disproportionately college graduates on the privileged side of that divide. A policy of wholesale debt forgiveness is really the government working for elites against the populist mass, and I think that would just be a horrible, horrible policy. And our last question also comes from Cindy. What are Andy's views on recent Biden cabinet appointments, in particular Jeanette Yellen as Treasury Secretary? I think the Yellen appointment is in no sense a surprise, but to me, you know, offers confirmation that policy will be accommodated and, broadly speaking, interventionalist that we are decades away from a shrinking monetary fiscal footprint in the economy. I've said on a number of occasions that the what people refer to as the Fed put, to me, that uh, never had a bigger presence. I think there'll be efforts that the Fed and the Treasury in general will support asset markets, or support asset markets is probably the wrong phraseology, but that the Fed and the Treasury will actively intervene to disrupt any cascading downward kind of cycles. So, you know, I don't think a Yellen appointment and the general drift of policy, you know, is an all clear to buy uh, Tesla and Facebook stock. But I think it's selling out of the money puts on the S&P and rolling them regularly is a pretty good strategy. I think one should bet against financial crises and cascading uh, downward effects any time in the next five years, at least. Sort of interesting when the Dow made a new high. Not that Trump is a barometer of fact or truth, but Trump gave campaign speeches that, you know, you have to vote for me or your 401k will be decimated. But then right as Biden's, you know, election became absolutely certain and the Dow made new high, that was Trump too. So the uh, the takeaway, monetary and fiscal policy will be supportive, no market crashes in the foreseeable future, but asset prices are high and, and, and one shouldn't jump in with uh, both feet. Thank you for listening to Ask Andy. If you would like to submit a question, please email askandypodcast at gmail.com. Ask Andy is sponsored by Park State Bank.
Visit www.parkstatebank.com for all your banking needs.